Great news for Informed Pregnancy Plus subscribers. Dive into our Core Connection course included with your subscription. Hosted by Natalie Headings, a pre- and postnatal exercise specialist and ACSM certified personal trainer, she's an incredible teacher. This five-video series equips you with essential insights to understand what your pelvic floor and core are, how they work, and how to enhance pelvic floor and core strength and proper function during and after your pregnancy and birth. Learn about pelvic floor basics, key postural adjustments, effective muscle releases, and breathing techniques for a healthier core and floor. Don't wait. Visit informedpregnancy.tv and get started with the invaluable core connection today. Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. You've tuned into part two of my conversation with Maggie Kelleher. Maggie, and welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. All right. Last episode, we talked a lot about your spinal cord injury as a nine-year-old and how you recovered from that and what experiences were like in early school, in high school in college and grad school and starting a career and getting married. Then you thought after your brother had a kid, you thought if he can do it, I can do it. <laughs> and your husband was on board. So yeah. what was your plan? Do you have to do things differently to get pregnant? No, that can just be the old fashioned way. I think that can be a misconception people have about people with disabilities is that, you know, you can't have sex or, you know, it has to look so different. And no, that's about the same. Okay. So, I mean, does that mean you were working to prevent pregnancy before you were ready? Yes. Okay. And I mean, once you were ready and you started trying, how did it go? Well, before we actively started trying, I connected with high-risk prenatal doctor to check in to make sure, is it safe for me? Because sometimes people, you know, depending on their injuries, maybe there's certain things that actually carrying the child is not in the best interest. So I checked in with him, you know, told him all my concerns and we talked about it. And he basically said, you know, you have the green light, like you're good to go. He said, these are the things, you know, that we'll keep an eye out and look out for throughout the pregnancy and delivery but here's what we'll do if any of these things happen. So there was a game plan, you know, for any of the possibilities that would pop up. What kind of things would potentially happen? Yeah, the main concern is autonomic dysreflexia, which is a condition that can happen when, uh, so people with spinal cord injuries, sometimes they can't feel, right? So if there's, let's say something in their shoe that's pokey or something, the body like responds in a pretty dramatic way to alert to this discomfort. So like blood pressure changes, ah. sweating, like all of that, that can be really life-threatening if not taken care of. And so my doctor's concern was, oh, okay, pregnancy and delivery is going to, you know, do stuff. 
It's and more so than a just, thing in your shoe. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bigger. So that was something that he wanted to monitor. So, you know, the plan was to give me an A-line, which helps monitor the blood pressure at an even more specific measure than just like a pressure cuff. And the A-line during the pregnancy or? During delivery. Oh, during delivery. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's more what they were worried about. That was the biggest one. And then urinary tract infections, obviously, for anyone who's pregnant. But then, yeah, people with spinal cord injuries sometimes have a higher risk of that and just monitoring that as well. Hmm. Okay, so after you got the green light, ready to go. Yeah, and actually took a while. It was about a year and a half before we got pregnant. Were you concerned? Yeah, I think after a year and a half, I was like, well, maybe we should go check in on that. And so we went to just an initial appointment of like, hey, here's some information. And funny enough, at that appointment, I was actually pregnant. And uh, like, oh. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, awesome. I know. It was, I was like, oh, wow. Well, I guess that appointment works. So, <laughs> Okay. So first of all, what kind of research are you doing about pregnancy? Like, you know, it's an unknown for everybody who's never been pregnant before and maybe a bigger unknown for you. So were you able to find resources and information? Unfortunately, I had a really hard time finding anything about, you know, women with disabilities giving birth. I connected with the University of Washington. They have a spinal cord section of their research and hospital and just reached out to say, hey, is there anyone that you know with a spinal cord injury who had babies who's willing to talk to me? And they connected me with a woman who was super, super helpful. And I got to ask her all these questions. And my biggest takeaway from her was like, it's pretty normal and it's pretty boring. It's pretty like everything else. And even I was thinking, oh, it's going to be like, because of this disability, it's going to look so different. She was like, "Mm, no, (laughs) she said the biggest stuff was more after the pregnancy and the delivery, like parenting with a disability, which my head wasn't even there yet. I was like, well, we got to get the baby. (laughs) (laughs) Cart before the horse. Okay. Horse before the cart. Yeah. So she was really helpful. Yeah. Okay. So how were the different stages of pregnancy for you? I was really tired in the first trimester. I remember just being the weirdest amount of tired I've ever felt in my life. And then nauseous too, which, you know, is typical. I was transitioning jobs at that time too. So I was working two different types of therapy jobs at the same time. And so everything felt extra tired, just mentally, Mm. physically. So I remember that the first trimester was pretty challenging. Amazing though, because it's such, I'm just like, wow, the human body is amazing. Second trimester felt like myself, which was amazing. And then I found out I got gestational diabetes, which was a super, super big bummer. <laughs> but, mm. um, yeah. You found out more like towards the third trimester? I found out in October and he was due at the end of December. So whatever that makes it. I don't know. Yeah, and then the third trimester. Wow. So for gestational diabetes, usually you change your diet, but also try to be more active. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was lucky enough that just changing my diet, I could manage it. I didn't need insulin. And I continued with doing the stand-up table and the arm bike and stuff like that. But it's obviously not like going for a huge run at the end of the day or anything. Right. Um, yeah. The, the hardest part for me with the gestational diabetes is you have to 
prick your fingers like four times a day. And I can't do that to myself. So I was thinking, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this at work? Right. Because oh, if I'm right. home, my husband would help me. But at work, I'm like, and I started a new job. So I didn't have like, you know, coworkers that I've been around forever. But two coworkers really just, we became friends really quickly. And they were super excited to prick my fingers. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was like, I'll do it. Can I do it? <laughs> She'd come stop by my office and be like, it's time to prick your fingers. <laughs> like, well, thank you. <laughs> Are your fingers sensitive? Uh, I mean, I can feel them and they're pretty soft because they don't touch a lot of things. So they don't have a lot of callus built up. Mm -hmm. uh, I did not like that part, but I got used to it. Yeah. It seems like a place for innovation, actually, for those landscapes yeah. to be able to do it yourself, you know, yes. with, with less mobility. Totally. So, I don't know who to talk to about that, but it seems like it's not that hard to do, especially now they have lancet devices with a barrel so that you could preload you know, a That's bunch cool. of, yeah, and a bunch of needles and then, you know, it just automatically moves to the next one. So that you Gosh. always have a sterile needle. And also it, it seems like you could probably do it with, you know, like an automated yeah. situation without the I, having to spring load it or whatever. Yeah. I feel like we should be there. I always say, like we put a man on the moon, like we should be able to do this one too. Absolutely. I mean, you know, talking to you is really interesting and eye-opening for me, like some of the things that you say, like, you know, it's obviously not like going for a big run and how much I take for granted that I could go for a big run, <laughs> but I go for a big burger instead. Yeah, I do that too sometimes. Oh. <laughs> All right. So we're samesies. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, let's take another little break and then uh, find out how you plan for your birth and how things actually went. We'll be right back. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike. Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Maggie Kelleher. Okay, 
So by the third trimester, you find that you have gestational diabetes, but you were able to control it with dietary changes. What point did you start thinking about your birth options? Uh, I was thinking about that the moment I found out I was pregnant. I was super excited. And then I was like, whoa, what did I just do? (laughs) (laughs) I remember having a moment like I called my dad and I was like, oh, yes, this is happening. And uh-huh. oh, this is what this means. He's going to have to come out somehow. It's <laughs> always, I remember it. But it was a conversation that I had with my doctor a lot where he, he was a great doctor, really supportive and open. And he's like, you could do a vaginal delivery if you want. You could do C-section. And we just more and more discussion, just kind of, I decided that for me personally, C-section was what was going to be the safest for me. I did not want to start a vaginal delivery and it ended up being an emergency Mm C-section. I think that would have been really dangerous for me. So having it planned and prepped and everyone there, because I think I had extra people in the room for the C-section, like the anesthesiologist specifically for like the A-line and all these types of things. So it felt very set up and prepared. Yeah. Did your OB have experience delivering with women with disabilities previously? I don't think so. Because I asked, I said, have you had patients with spinal cord injuries before? And I think he said he had a patient who used a wheelchair. And I could mm. be remembering this wrong, but it's not the same as this one. No, no. Right. Uh, he did a lot of research himself, so that was good. But yeah. Can you tell us more about the A-line? How is that inserted? Where does it go and what does it do? Yeah. So I remember when they rolled me into the operating room, they like strapped down my right arm and they basically put this plastic stick in one of the bigger veins and it stays there throughout the whole surgery. And it was super bloody. I remember watching it. And I'm like, what am I doing? I just remember like, this is happening. But, you know, great anesthesiologists, great doctors, great surgeons, like everyone was super great at what they were doing. But yeah, that was a weird one because it just stays in your wrist. And afterwards, my arm was super bruised all the way up and down. It does not sound pleasant. <laughs> no. I mean, the, the interesting thing is so far, everything you said is really not different than people without similar disabilities. So everybody pretty much has the option to have a vaginal birth or a cesarean birth. And many women go through the same risk benefit analysis or what's good about this option or bad and what's good about the other option or bad. And they make a decision and your decision gets supported. And then it doesn't sound other than that A-line, which does not sound good. I mean, I'm a little squeamish around myself being poked with things. <laughs> you know, during COVID, I got COVID right away before it was cool. Oh, and, yeah. And before we had any idea what to do with it. And I ended up in the ICU for a while. And as I was actually starting to get a little bit better, a nurse came in and she said, you know, my blood pressure was really low. I'm usually like high 140 over 80 and it was like 80 over 40 and they wouldn't let me stand up. They're afraid I was going to pass out. And she's like, you know, normally the blood pressure starts to go up when your body's not in as much crisis, but mine wasn't. And I remember when the nurse came in and she said, look, Elliot, if we can't get your blood pressure up, we're going to have to give you a medication that can only be administered through an IV in the jugular vein in your neck. 
And that I was like, brought your blood pressure. Yeah, I was like, yeah, exactly. It. I was like, well, Rose, I don't think we have to worry about that now, do we? It seems like We're it just good. went on pretty high right there. <laughs> Tell me something else. Yeah, actually, I really think it worked because <laughs> the next day I started to creep up in my blood pressure. I was like waving my arms and legs around and, you know, I couldn't get out of bed. I probably looked like a bird trying to take off. I don't know. I was doing anything yeah. I could to get the pressure going. Totally. So, I mean, you're obviously very strong and strong will, you know, to have all these different things done to you and just look at it and and be like, oh, that's me. I have this yep. stick in my arm and I'm bleeding all over the place. Being that observer. <laughs> that's right. So, I mean, once the baby's out, do you remember the first cry? No. So we were planning on an epidural, but I have scoliosis. My spine is crooked and twisted. You can't really tell looking at me, but looking at x-rays is very obvious. And my concern was, I don't think they're going to be able to get it in there, but they're the doctors. Let them try it. And so they tried it. And I remember they put those compression things on your feet to keep the blood going. And I remember still feeling it. You felt the compression things? Okay. Yeah. After the epidural. And... They're like, we'll give it five more minutes. And I was like, I still feel it. And so, oh, wow. yeah, I was like, I'm feeling this. How I'm not going to be like, and cut me open. They, were like, they used well, like a have- pinwheel to see if you could feel like around your belly. Yeah, they did the pin too. And I was like, yeah, I feel yep, that. Uh, okay. That's not a secure feeling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I was like very vocal about that one. And they said, well, do you want to try another one or do you want to just go under general? And I was like, general. I was like, bye. I'm I'm kind of ready to just take a nice little nap here. And I knew general anesthesia was going to be a a possibility because I talked to them about my spine and say, you know, what if it doesn't work? They said, well, then we do general. Not ideal, right? But when your other option is feeling the surgery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yourself being cut open. (laughs) Yeah. Um, is your scoliosis related to your injury or you just had a scoliosis anyway? So being in a wheelchair over time, typically that develops. So that's kind of where it came from. I didn't have it prior to my injury, but mm. over time it just has been progressive. So did someone take pictures or video of your birth happening? No, that's probably one of the more disappointing parts. My husband obviously couldn't be in the room once I went under general. They kicked him out. And so I think all he got to see is some flashes through the windows of like bloody towels. being. So I, it's not the most like, and here's your beautiful first video. First picture. <laughs> but a nurse did, thankfully, went to my husband and said, hey, give me your phone and took a picture of my baby when he came out. So I have one or two pictures of him. Now, I wasn't present mentally, obviously. I was out and my husband was in, you know, a room outside. So thankfully I have those pictures. How was your recovery? Um, so I had to go in another room for the anesthesia to wear off. That was hard. Um, just it was heavy. It took a while. That was about two hours. And then I got to see him. So that was really so amazing. And they sent him by me. And I remember the nurse saying, Wow, his vitals have never looked so good. And It was really nice. So after that, cesarean recovery is, you know, recovery from surgery in general limits you and you're Mm -hmm. already limited. So was that extra challenging for you? 
I think I am like the ideal candidate for a C-section because I'm not standing. I'm not trying to lift anything. I'm not moving. I'm just sitting and that, you know, incision has the most beautiful environment to heal. Uh-huh. So I'm grateful for my recovery. It wasn't that bad. It was pretty good. I took the medication in the first couple of days and then I was like, I don't think I really need cotton or whatever they give you. I just kind of kept taking the Tylenol for a few more days and then I was pretty good. So I know that's not the typical experience with the C-section. So I'm very grateful for that. Like it was not too bad. Yeah. I mean, the way you're saying it may be easier than it would be if you were up and about. Mm-hmm. So. All right. Let's take a break. When we come back, we have one more segment with you. I want to find out how early motherhood was for you. We will yeah. be right back. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Maggie Kelleher. Okay, you have a baby. I mean, the whole thing is incredible, an incredible journey so far. How does early motherhood work with a spinal cord injury? First of all, in terms of breastfeeding, is that an option for you that you wanted to explore? Yeah, it was an option for me. I think I didn't recognize the importance of starting right away. So my baby was in the NICU for like 10 days. He kind of had a little bit of a shallow breathing. So they wanted to just make sure he was good. It was never like touch and go or anything like that. Thank God. But it meant that he was away from me because I couldn't stay with him. So that really inhibited the breastfeeding stuff, which, but in the moment I was just kind of like, is he okay? Like, I don't know. It's such a weird experience. So I wasn't thinking, oh, breastfeeding. That's what I really need to do in this exact moment. And then the way it worked out, obviously, my husband is a huge support and he was the one feeding and doing all that stuff. And so I did breastfeed, you know, when I could, and I ended up doing that for about five weeks, but it was just really challenging. It's just another extra thing to ask someone to help you to do. So I think if I were ever getting the chance to do it again, I think I would try in a different way and really recognize like, oh, okay, start early and things like that. So. I mean, would somebody have to hold the baby for you? They would have to help me position the baby, you know, a pillow or whatever like that. Then I would be fine. Okay. So, I mean, help, but, you know, you're still doing the work. Yeah. Feeling the pain. (laughs) And and that. And then also just in general, I mean, if you think about typically all the bending, lifting, holding, feeding, changing, how do you adapt to that? Yeah. So that's where my awesome husband comes in. He obviously did all the diapers, the changing, the, you know, everything like that. I think the weirdest thing for me was actually having to ask someone else if I could hold my baby. That mm-hmm. kind of sucked. That's kind uh, of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Where of course everyone, you know, my husband would always hand them to me. It wasn't like, he'd be like, no, but just even having to say, oh, can I hold him? You know? So that was, that was probably one of the more frustrating parts, but my family, his family, super supportive, like amazing help and support in my life. So without that, I know that would be extremely, extremely challenging. Yeah. So I did a lot of the naps and the feedings with the bottle and things like that. I just remember him mostly just being on my lap the whole time for the first however many months, just keeping him with me. How old is he now? 
He's a little over two and a half. Uh, so he's running around. Oh, yeah. He has this scooter and he goes down these big ramps and does little jumps. <laughs> like, <laughs> slow down. <laughs> I mean, you said if I ever do it again, is that something you're considering? I would like to, but I don't know if it's something that's going to happen or not. But if I could just magically go, yes, here's another one, I would do it. Yeah. Meaning you don't know because of everything that's involved with the pregnancy, the birth, and aftermath? or Probably more just raising another kid. It's just a lot of logistics and, you know, making sure that both me and my husband are like, yep, you know, we're on board and all that. Mm-hmm. I think we're both people that really want to make sure we have the capacity, you know, mentally, physically, financially, all of that to yeah, really support I, another one. Kind of the same as uh, discussion I think we all have. Exactly. So, um, I would go back to this. You said that when you were trying to get more information about pregnancy with spinal cord injury, you found one person that you could <laughs> talk to. And the biggest takeaway was that your pregnancy and birth are just fairly typical. And it's the mothering part afterwards that's harder. Was that your experience too? In some ways, yes. Because when I look back at my pregnancy, my delivery, everything, like I had a good one. You know, it wasn't perfect, right? Gestational diabetes. But in general, the stuff that I see other people have to go through, I'd take mine any day. So, yeah, and I think the piece about being a parent with a disability is that's all about adaptation. So you're really having to think, well, how do I carry this child and maneuver my wheelchair? How do I make sure, you know, all those. So it's a lot of that mental work that I think is, that's where the hard part comes in. The other stuff, my body just thankfully did it for me. So if you're the person who's had the experience now and somebody were to call you, and yeah. say, hey, I have the spinal cord injury and I'm thinking about getting pregnant. What would you tell them? Say, do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the thing that I'm most proud of and the thing that I find actually really impressive about myself that like birthed a whole child. Like, I don't know how we do it, but we do it all the time. And I still can't wrap my head around it. I think it's so amazing. And having my son is just the best thing in the world. I love him so much. And he's brought me so much joy. And he's just, gosh, to miss out on that, if you really want that, do it. I'm literally on the verge of tears. And I'll tell you why. Even though it's an audio podcast, we have video. And every single time you talk about your son, your (laughs) face lights up, like with the most incredible amount of joy. I can't describe it, but it's a really beautiful thing to see. Maggie, what would you want for able-bodied people around you to know in general? And also, you know, me, I think you could even hear now I'm asking you the questions. I'm guarded and I'm hypersensitive to not wanting to offend you in any way. And you're so open and easy to talk to. But I just wonder in general, like if you see somebody in a chair with a spinal cord injury with or without a kid, what would you want us to know? I think the first thing is I would highly encourage not going up to them and saying, what's wrong with you? I get that all the time. Oh, really? What's wrong with you? Yeah. Not the best opener. No, Uh, no. (laughs) Not a great pickup line. (laughs) No, no. I I say, what's wrong with you? But so that's just one thing. The other thing that I think comes up a lot is 
people often want to know, well, how do I help you? You know, what, what actually helps you? And I think being an advocate for me is super helpful. So for example, if you go to a restaurant and there's no disability entrance, say something about it, you know, so that the person with the disability doesn't have to be outside saying, hey, I can't get in, right? Be that person that goes into the manager and says, why, why isn't there a ramp here? I think that's really how people could help. That's really powerful. I'm going to do that from now on. Thank um, you. <laughs> and I'm going to start with those insulin testers, those uh, blood sugar testers, the little lancets. I'm going to search and see if they exist. And if not, I'm going to write to the companies and ask if they can make one. That's amazing. I love it. Yep. Mm -hmm. Well, we're at the end of a two-part podcast. And I guess before we sign off, do you have any last thoughts? I think my last thoughts are just, you know, if a person does have a spinal cord injury or some sort of disability to really find a doctor that listens to you and is willing to really understand what you're trying to say and collaborate versus the doctor saying, well, this is how you have to do something. Um, I, I looked out and had one that was super supportive and willing to do the work to figure out, gosh, what do we need to look out for? And I don't know. So that's a big piece for me. And just being thankful for my family and supports that have allowed me to do this. And my hope is being able to talk about this stuff encourages other people that, hey, they could do it too if they wanted. I bet it will. Well, Maggie, thanks so much for joining us and for sharing your story. And I don't know if you have another one, I'm going to definitely catch up with you again. <laughs> okay. I'll let you know if that happens. <laughs> At home, thanks for listening to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, visit us on Instagram at Dr. Berlin. It's D-O-C-T-O-R-B-E-R-L-I-N. I got a whole lot of questions for you This kid's gonna test my will I got a lot to learn and my baby's too <laughs> This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike Dr. Mom Butt Bomb as a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. <laughs>